The Old Testament reading for today is Ezekiel 2, 1 through 3, 15. And the sermon text is Revelation chapter 10. After the prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, he fell on his face. Ezekiel lived long before the coming of Christ. And he saw a vision that drove him to not only his knees, but to fall flat on his face. And he heard the voice of one speaking, saying, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. Here, the prophet Ezekiel is being commissioned. He's being sent out by God to do a particular task. I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back, And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, that is to the foreign nations, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have hurt a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, have I made your forehead. In other words, you will be able to stand up in the midst of their stubbornness. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. And go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went away in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles of Tel Abib who were dwelling by the Chabar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them for seven days. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 10. We will be reading and covering the whole chapter today, Revelation chapter 10. John says, 
Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet Call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it, it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel who ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So far the reading of God's word. We do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of the scriptures. I do hope by now that you are growing accustomed to the rhythm of the book of Revelation. Uh, The book is highly structured, and it is also very repetitive. Both the structure and the repetition are very meaningful. Uh, The repetition, that is the repeated, albeit very description of how things will be in the world and the age between Christ's first and second comings, is meaningful for a number of reasons, but one of them being that it corresponds to the repetitive nature of human history. You notice that the scriptures are true, that there is nothing new under the sun. The writer of Ecclesiastes makes this point, that there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, the book of Revelation portrays through the symbol-laden vision shown to John, recorded for us in chapters 6 through 8, how things will be in this world until Christ returns. And there is indeed repetition. Uh, Two passages from the Gospels, which record the direct teaching of Christ concerning these things, seem to sum up the overarching message of Revelation chapters 6 through 8. You can tell I am right now reviewing some things with you. I want to read these texts to you. They're not very long. The first has been cited many times. It comes from Matthew 24, 6 through 8. And there we hear Christ say to his disciples, And you will hear, he's speaking to them concerning how things will be in this world. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus spoke most directly about this during his earthly ministry It seems to be the thing that Revelation chapters 6 through 8 have symbolized for us. This truth taught by Christ in a most direct way has been portrayed in Revelation via symbol. This age will be marked by nations rising against nations, wars, rumors of wars, famines, natural disasters. This will be the norm. 
Their presence does not necessarily signal the end, but rather reminds us that the end will eventually come. God, by his mercy, will restrain evil until then. He will refrain from pouring out full and final judgment until the appointed time. But we should expect an intensification of wickedness and calamity on earth as the day of the Lord draws near. As it is with birth pains, so will it. So it is when it comes to wickedness and trials and tribulations in the world. We should expect intensification. You get it, right? I know you get it. I hope you're internalizing this and allowing it to make a difference in your life, brothers and sisters, as you live in this world that is marked by so much trouble. Uh, This is what Jesus taught directly, and this is what Revelation chapter 6 through 8 has symbolized to us. Uh, The second passage that comes to mind from the teaching of Christ is in the Gospel of John chapter 16 and 17. There's no way I can read all of that to you now. You should read it on your own time, perhaps. Uh, but listen to the words of Christ in John 16:33. It kind of summarizes all of the chapter before it and what comes after. Here is how he prepares his disciples for life in this world in the time between his first and second comings. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I'm saying everything that I'm saying to you right now so that you may have peace, right? In the world, he says, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, This is the other overarching message communicated in Revelation chapters 6 through 8. Those who belong to Christ will experience tribulation, but they are to be at peace in the world. Why are they to be at peace? Well, because Christ has overcome the world and they belong to him. He has won the victory so that to die in Christ is really to live. Do you remember Revelation 6, 9 through 11? The souls of the martyrs there. To die in Christ is really to live. His people are sealed so that they might be preserved in the midst of tribulation. Do you remember Revelation 7, 3 through 8 and the 144,000 sealed? And because they are sealed, those who belong to Christ are also protected from the torments of the evil one. Remember Revelation 9, 4. We looked at it not long ago. But the scorpion, the, the, the locusts with scorpion tails were allowed to sting those who did not have God's seal upon them. And so what was said most directly by Christ in John chapters 16 and 17 and particularly 1633 is portrayed in the book of Revelation. You're going to have tribulation, but my desire for you is that you be at peace. Why can you be at peace? Because Christ has overcome. He has won the victory. God will keep his people in the midst of tribulation in and through Christ Jesus. Jesus said it directly. The visions of Revelation have symbolized it for us. The book of Revelation also urges the Christian to be comforted. Now listen to this. The book of Revelation also urges the Christian to be comforted by the bittersweet thought that God is active in pouring out partial and perpetual judgments upon his enemies even now and that he will indeed judge his enemies fully and finally in the end. That is a bittersweet thought, isn't it? It brings comfort to the Christian in some ways, but it also is a terrible thought at the same time. Therefore, the repetition of Revelation 6 through 8 is intended to drive these three points home. One, there will be tribulation in the world until the Lord returns, and even the people of God will experience it. Two, God will preserve those who are his in Christ Jesus. He will sustain them until the very end. Three, God is actively judging his enemies now in partial ways, but he will judge fully and finally in the end. This thought should be bittersweet to the Christian. Sweet in that it will be the day when God makes all things right and new, 
bitter and that no Christian would ever celebrate at the thought of even a personal enemy coming under God's judgment, but would rather mourn. Ezekiel 18.23 is significant here. We should remember that the final judgment will produce not celebration in heaven, but solemn silence, a silence to be felt, Revelation 8.1. So even the thought of final judgment should be bittersweet to us. I've, I've taken the time to review in this way for two reasons. One, I want to exhort you to think deeply about these particular truths before we move on from them. It is not that we will move away from these concepts completely, but the focus will shift rather significantly in the book of Revelation, beginning with chapter 12, which we will come to in just a few weeks. I want you to think deeply about these truths that we have been considering in a a repetitive fashion. You, You felt the repetition, right? Maybe you've even grumbled about the repetition. Wasn't that the same sermon he preached last Sunday, basically? Well, yes, Um, Maybe I could have divided it up a little bit better, I'll admit it, church, and and not uh, devoted one sermon to a particular passage. But I think there is some benefit to feeling the repetition of the book of Revelation. It is a repetitive book, and it's repetitive for a reason. It's almost as if God is trying to drive home a point. And it's a very important point, one that I find Christians actually struggling with quite frequently. That is how to live in a world that is so difficult, so marked by trouble, right? Right? Some of you I know have, have recently struggled with very significant things. Illness, being wronged by others, the death of a loved one. You know, These are the things that mark this present evil age. And knowing how to view all of that and how to think about that, biblically speaking, is, is very important. You, right? So here the book of Revelation, I, I hope it's practical to you. I've had wonderful personal conversations with some of you concerning very particular problems. And it's amazing to me as a pastor how often I actually break up the, the, the imagery of the book of Revelation. Be comforted by this truth. I'm willing to do that with all of you if you would come to me. But I think that some of you are able right now to just simply do it yourself by being thoughtful, by, by going home and thinking about this situation in your life or that one or this thing that you have read in the newspaper or that one and to apply these truths that have been repetitively communicated to us here in the book of Revelation. So think deeply about them. Don't just move on from them, but apply them to your life, whatever it is that you happen to be going through, whatever struggle you're currently facing. But I've also reviewed in this way so as to help us get our bearings before jumping into this new and distinct portion of the book of Revelation. John, Revelation chapter 10 and 11 uh, makes up a very distinct portion of the book of Revelation. You've heard me say that numerous times now. It's because of the structure of, of, of the book. But we have here a very distinct passage. What we have here, beginning with 10.1, is another interlude. Uh, you do remember I've used that term before, right? Interlude. Uh, I used it before to describe the literary feature that we encountered near to the end of the seal cycle. You remember the seals, the seven seals? You remember... At the beginning of the seal cycle that, that, that we were told that there would be seven seals to be broken by the Lamb. We saw that heavenly vision. It set the stage for it. Uh, John uh, wept when he saw the heavenly vision that there was a scroll that God had in his right hand sealed with seven seals that no one in heaven or on earth was able to break except the Lamb of God who had been slain but was now alive. But we were told that there were seven seals on it. And we began to progress through the book of Revelation and those individual seals were broken and there were visions that were 
poured out and shown to John as the seals were broken. And so we progress through the book of Revelation. One, two, three, four, five, six. And then there was this strange, strange insertion. Uh, something happened instead of us being told of the seventh seal uh, there was an interruption in the text and so that interruption provided a sense of delay what it communicated theologically is that the book of revelation is not yet ready to tell us about the time of the end the end is not yet the same kind of emphasis that christ had in his earthly ministry when he taught about these things wars rumors of wars but the end is not yet Uh, but the content of the interlude was also most revealing it was there in revelation chapter 7 that we were shown the 144,000 sealed on earth, followed by a vision of all the redeemed in heaven, an innumerable multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's the content of the, the first interlude. It had to do with God's people on earth, sealed, prote- protected, preserved, 144,000, the number being symbolic. And it also gave us a vision of God's people redeemed in heaven. Uh, an innumerable multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so you have all of these judgments being symbolized in the seal cycle, but what did the interlude communicate to us is, except that God is able to keep his people in earth, uh, on earth until the time of the end, and he will certainly bring them home to glory. He will finish the job. It was a very encouraging portion of the book of Revelation. God cares for his people. He knows who they are. He is able to pour out his judgments with precision upon his enemies and yet keep his people, and bring them home to glory. It is no surprise then that we find the same feature in the trumpet cycle, which has mirrored the seal cycle in many ways. How many trumpets are to be blown? Seven. How many have been blown? Six. And now we have an interruption. The seventh trumpet will not be blown until Revelation 11.15. So we have an interruption. It's an interlude. If you were to guess, based upon what you have seen so far in the book of Revelation, what do you think will be the emphasis in this interlude? What's going to be the emphasis? What is going to be the thing that is focused upon? Wouldn't you assume that we would, again, see an emphasis upon God's preservation of his people? That's what happened the first time. And indeed, that is what is going to happen here in this interlude. I want you to flip over to Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. This is still in the interlude portion. And look at, look at verse 1. It is there that John is given, given a measuring rod like a staff. It's another vision. He's given a measuring rod like a staff and is told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar in those who worship there. Something symbolic is happening. We are to assume that this is not literal, but symbolic. We're in the book of Revelation. He's told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So, so, so something physical, but also people are to be measured, right? The temple, the altar, and those who worship there are protected. That is what is made clear. While the court outside the temple, verse 2, is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, I'll explain the text when we get there. For now, recognize the obvious point that it has to do with the protection and preservation of those who worship God on earth as they are surrounded by the wicked. Do you see the symbolism there? We don't even have to talk very much more about it except to see that John was told to measure off something and to leave something else exposed to the trampling of the nation. Right, It again is going to highlight the fact that God is able to protect his people. 
in this world. The same principles communicated, but from a different vantage point with the two witnesses who are called the two olive trees in Revelation 11, 3 through 13. They serve God faithfully. They are killed by the wicked. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Revelation 11, 11 through 12. So I'll explain this text when we get there. But for now, recognize that this passage has to do with God's ability to bring his servants safely home to glory. That is what these two are. They are the servants of God. They represent the church, God's people. They are witnesses. They are slain, caught up in the trials and tribulations and persecutions of this world. But do they stay dead? No, to die in Christ is really to live. They are brought home to glory. So the interlude of chapter 11 mirrors the interlude of chapter 7. The same overarching principles are communicated in both texts, but in a different way so as to make a different emphasis. You've noticed, no doubt, that I have said a lot about the chapters that have come before our text by way of review. And I've also looked forward to the chapter that comes after our text, but as of yet, I've said absolutely nothing about the text that is before us today. And so We need to go there now. Uh, Here in chapter 10, what we have is a vision whereby John, the author of this book, is recommissioned to prophecy concerning God's judgments, which to John is bittersweet. So we have an interlude. Chapter 11, the second part of it, mirrors chapter 7, the interlude of the seal cycle, mirrors the interlude of the trumpet cycle. But here in chapter 10, we have something that we have not seen before. It is utterly unique. It is a part of this interlude, no doubt. It plays an important role in it. But we have not encountered anything like this before. John is recommissioned to prophecy concerning God's judgments, which to him is a bittersweet task. Indeed, we have to admit that John has already been prophesying in the book of Revelation. He has already been bearing witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, which was the task he was given way back in Revelation 1-2. But here in 10-1, John is recommissioned as the chain of transmission that was verbally communicated in Revelation 1, 1-3 is visibly portrayed. Here's what I mean by that. I think this is, should be of interest to you. Um, I want you to remember the chain of transmission that was verbally communicated in Revelation 1, 1 through 3. Listen to the text. This is how the book is introduced. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The prophecies of the book of Revelation come to us ultimately from who? From God. And who did he give the the message to? The text tells us that he gave the, the prophecies, the message to Jesus Christ, and who did Jesus Christ give them to? To his angel. We are not told who that angel is, particularly. We might think of Michael or Gabriel or some other well known, famous, named angel. 
in, in the scriptures. But Jesus Christ gave them to his angel, this one with great authority, who gave them to who? To John, who of course gave them to us in writing them down. We have them preserved for us. So we have this chain of transmission verbally stated in Revelation 1, 1 through 3. But it has been symbolized, uh, visually symbolized progressively in the book of Revelation through the exchange of something. What thing has been exchanged, has been passed off, handed off a, few, a couple of times now in the book of Revelation? This, this scroll. This scroll has been handed off. Remember back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, John wrote, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Remember we made much of this, that John already had been told concerning how things were in his day, letters to the seven churches. He was told that he would then prophesy concerning how things would be from that day forward. He was shown a heavenly vision, and then there's this scroll that shows up, sealed with seven seals. What are we to assume as the reader, except there it is. There's the content of the prophecies uh, that are going to be given to John. And so we saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with seven seals, and it was written uh, on the back and, and on, the, on the front. And then what happened a little later in that text, Revelation 5, 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who did that except Jesus, the, the, the Lamb of God, who was there, picture as Lamb. So we see the chain of transmission. Remember the first step? Came from God to Jesus, but no more has been shown to us up to this point. Here, we have a vision of the last stages of the train, chain of transmission. As a mighty angel descends to give the little scroll now opened to John, and God recommissions him to prophesy. The recommissioning at this point serves to highlight the fact that everything is about to intensify in the book and will have to do with the time of the end and what are here called the mysteries of God. Do you understand this? Verbally stated chain of transmission. Now we kind of see it, it, the, 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 the chain of transmission unfold before us. In 10.1 we read, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Uh, some argue that this must be Christ himself, given the glorious way in which this angel is described and the similarities with other passages that describe the glory of God or the glory of Christ. It is better, I think, to understand this being to be the mighty angel who comes from God and Christ and therefore represents them in a most powerful way. Why is he, why does he, um, why is he described in this way? It is because he is God and Christ's representative. He is indeed a mighty angel who has a, a very important role to play. In 10.2 we read, he had a little scroll in his hand. Uh, we should not make too much out of the fact that, that, uh, that before this is simply called the scroll, whereas now it is called a little scroll. In fact, it is called both scroll and little scroll throughout this passage. What is significant, I think, is that the little scroll is said to now be what? Is it sealed up with seven seals and closed so that no one can read it? Twice in this text we are told that this scroll is now open. It is open. Uh, that is emphasized here in 10.2 and also in 10.8 where John is told to 
told that the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel is to be taken and, and eaten. Uh, this is the scroll that was at first sealed, but has been opened by Christ, given to the angel. We did not see that exchange, but it is implied, isn't it? And now the angel is seen here giving it to John, and then also implied is the fact that we have it now in the book of Revelation. In 10.2, the angel is described as having set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This angel and the God who sent him has authority over land and sea. The scroll that he has will speak to God's judgment over all that proceeds from land and sea. This is going to become very important as the book of Revelation progresses. Those of you who are familiar with it know that it is out of the sea that the beasts arise and another beast comes from the land, right? And so what do we see? But this powerful figure, this angel who represents God, and he is standing on both land and sea. What he is giving to John has to do with all of creation and indeed He has authority over all of creation. In 10.3, we are told that the angel called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Isn't this interesting? The seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, John says, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. This is different. Everything else up to this point, John has been told to write it down, to reveal it. So how many cycles of seven are there in the book of Revelation then? It's a tempting, uh, a trick question, I'll admit it. Uh, It's tempting to say three. I think actually that would be the right answer, not an incorrect answer, certainly. There are three cycles of seven, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. But in a way, and, and really there are four, if we include the thunders that are mentioned here, Uh, They typically are not mentioned because the content of the seven thunders is not revealed, but rather hidden. John was commanded to seal up what the seven thunders have said and not to write it down. I think this should remind us of Daniel's experience. You remember the Old Testament prophet Daniel who was shown visions very similar to the vision shown to John. But after receiving a particular vision concerning the time of the end, Daniel was told to seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. In other words, I've given you this vision, but don't don't reveal it, Daniel. This little mention of the seven thunders that are to be sealed up by John and not revealed should remind us of Daniel's experience in Daniel chapter 8, verse 26. Now, commentators disagree over the meaning of the thunders being revealed to John and yet withheld from us. What does it mean? Why did this happen? There are two views that are prominent. Um, Some say that this is yet another way of God communicating that there will be no more delay. No more delay. And indeed, that is emphasized in this this text. In other words, this might be God's way of saying that there will not be an ongoing recapitulation of cycles which communicate partial judgments. It is time for the bowls of God's full wrath to be poured out now. Do you get it? So, you have the seal cycle and a lot of the seal cycle has to do with delay and restraint and the end is not yet not until the very end of the seal cycle does the end come same thing with the trumpets much much of it has to do with the time between Christ's first and second coming delay restraint the end is not yet and at the very end of it the the end comes when we come to the bulls it's all about final judgment and so perhaps these these uh, thunders are not revealed to us it's God's way of saying to us this pattern of 
God showing mercy and restraining and, and, and giving time before the end is not going to go on forever. I think it's a possible interpretation of the meaning of this. Or maybe this is a way of communicating that though the book of Revelation reveals much, it does not reveal all to us concerning the time of the end. There are some things about the time of the end which will remain mysterious to us and will only be known and understood as they happen. In other words, the book of Revelation advances what was revealed to Daniel. Seal it up, Daniel. Don't write about it. It concerns a time far off from now. The book of Revelation begins to expand upon that. But here, perhaps, this mention of the thunders is meant to make us realize that not everything is revealed to us. We still have a very limited perspective on things. How exactly will it go down? What exactly will it look like? Really, we do not know. And so the book of Revelation, though it indeed does reveal things to us, does not reveal all. I prefer the second view. But it is not impossible to see that both might be correct, perhaps both the end of delay and the ongoing presence of mystery are meant to be communicated by the withholding of the content of the seven thunders. I want you to look at verse 5. And the angel whom I saw, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. No more delay. And so, in the context, this principle of no more delay is right there. So maybe the withholding of the trumpet cycle does have, or excuse me, the, the thunder cycle does have to, to do with this. But let's read on. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So actually, this principle that, hey, you do not know all is also communicated here. There are still things that are mysterious to us when the Bible refers to mystery. It is referring to things that are at one time concealed, unknown to us, kind of cloudy to us, but then eventually become revealed. There was much in the Old Testament that was mysterious concerning the coming of the Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. It was mysterious to the prophets, it was mysterious even to the disciples of Christ up until the very end. But the life and ministry of Christ, particularly his death, burial, and resurrection, made that mystery clear. The same is true, though. There are some mysteries that remain. There are things that we don't know about the future. We will only know them after they happen. So maybe both views are, are, are somewhat true. Uh, these thunders communicate that there will be no more delay when they are withheld also, they communicate that we do not know all that we might want to know about the time of the end. This great angel swears by God, who is the creator and sovereign Lord of all created things, heaven, earth, and sea. And he swears that there will be no more delay. The seventh trumpet, when it is finally blown, will usher in a vision that signifies the consummation of all things. That is to say, the end. And what will be revealed in the bold judgments when we finally get to them except this, they have only to do with the time of the end. They have only to do with the full and final outpouring of the wrath of God. No more delay. I'm not sure how you could deny how it is that the book of Revelation recapitulates over and over again. We've come to the end in the seal cycles. 
We will certainly come to the end in the trumpet cycle once the seventh trumpet is blown, and then we will come to the time of the end again with the outpouring of God's wrath when the bulls are poured out. It will be in that day, on that last day, the day of the Lord, that the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servant the prophets. The prophets certainly spoke concerning the time of the end, that it will come is certain, but there is much we do not know. When will that day come? Don't you wish you knew? Actually, I don't. (laughs) When will that day come? Only God knows. And what exactly will it be like? Only God knows. In 10.8, John says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven, I think we're to think of Revelation 4.1 and 10.4 here, spoke to me again saying, John, go, take the scroll that is, again, open in the hand of the angel who's sitting, standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. Give me the scroll. I don't know how that looked. It sounds kind of terse here, doesn't it? I think he might have been more polite than just to say, give me the scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Without a doubt, we are to remember Ezekiel chapter 2, which we read at the beginning. And the prophets commissioning to preach to Israel concerning the impending doom that would come upon them. Ezekiel, the prophet, was called uh, to preach to that people and to call them to repentance. He was to call them to repentance constantly. He was, I mean, you heard the repetition in the Ezekiel passage. They are a rebellious house. They are certainly a rebellious house. They have faces like flint. I forget the exact terminology. They have hard foreheads, right? I mean, that is the thing emphasized. They are not going to, how would you like to have that commission? Go and preach to them. You'll never see any fruit. You're not going to get anywhere with them, but go and preach to them. Um, He was called to do that, to preach that message of repentance to them and to announce impending doom. And he too was given a scroll to eat. Uh, The meaning of that, it's symbolic, of course. It took place in the context of a vision. Uh, Is that the prophet Ezekiel was to internalize the message, was to eat it, to consume it. He was himself to take it to heart. He himself was to live by the word of God and to live by that message And only after he had done that was he to preach the message. By the way, that's a good word for us to follow. Whenever we find ourselves in a position where we are going to confront someone else with the word of God, be it in a preaching context or in a personal context, it is really important to eat the word yourself, to internalize it and to live by it before you seek to apply it to other people's lives. That is what the prophet Ezekiel was to do. And to him, the message was both sweet and bitter. It was sweet in that it was the word of God. It contained promises concerning the future. The book of Ezekiel contains promises concerning the coming of the Messiah and the time of the end. So in that sense, it was like honey to the prophet. He enjoyed eating this scroll. It was the word of God. There was life in it. There was promise in it. There was so much good in it. It was sweet to him. But near to the end of the text, you notice that the prophet went away and his stomach was sour. Why? Because he also knew that this same prophecy had to do with the judgment of his kinsmen, his own people, that they would not turn, but they certainly would come under the partial judgment of God. In verse one, uh, in verse, uh, excuse me, in verse ten of Revelation ten, John says, "I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, 
But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The message that John would have to proclaim, the message that we have here in the remainder of the book of Revelation, has to do not with ethnic Israel. The prophet Ezekiel's message had to do with ethnic Israel. But here we have a contrast. In fact, do you remember in the, in the instructions given to Israel, the emphasis was made, you're not going to go to people of strange speech, right? To a foreign people, but you're going to go to people who speak your language. You're going to go to Israel. Here, something else is said. John, you must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It's, an in, it's a very deliberate contrast. Ezekiel had this ministry, but you have this ministry. This is not going to be about ethnic Israel. But the prophecies here contained in the book of Revelation have to do with many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It is not hard to understand why his message is described as bittersweet. The message is bitter in that it has to do, it will have to do, with the full and final judgment. The seventh trumpet is going to be blown. After that, seven bowls are going to be poured out. Indeed, what remains concerning judgment uh, it, it's, it's a bitter message. Uh, it's a message concerning the outpouring of God's wrath upon the ungodly. But the message is also sweet in that it will describe the consummation of all of God's plans. The day when all will be made right in the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. Indeed, the book of Revelation from this point forward will paint some wonderfully glorious images for us concerning the new heavens and the new earth. And so sweet and yet bitter to John. Here are the questions that I have for you. Are you ready for the Lord's return? Are you ready for the Lord's return? Um, certainly we should think soberly concerning the time of the end when the Lord does return. It is going to be a frightful day for those not in Christ. Are you ready for that day? Or are you unprepared? You are certainly unprepared if you are not in Christ, if you do not have faith in Him, for you currently stand in your sins and will stand before God in your sin and will be judged for your transgression of God's most holy law. You are not prepared. You are not properly clothed if you do not have faith in Christ. And I would even want to warn the one who is in Christ, who is living in sin, and say to them, though you may be saved, you are not living as you ought. You are not living as if the Lord may return at any time. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, Jesus said. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep and what i say to you i say to all stay awake and then secondly i would ask this question is the thought of the lord's return and all that will happen on that day bittersweet to you it was bittersweet to john like honey in his mouth but it turned his stomach bitter and i think it is only right that for every christian the thought of the lord's return have that same effect upon us that if we are to consider it from a, from a particular vantage point it leads us only to rejoice 
Come quickly, Lord. We long to see that day. We cannot wait for that day because it will be on that day that we see you face to face and we enter into the kingdom uh, promised and prepared for us. We cannot wait to see your, your return, Lord, if we are in Christ. Indeed, that should be our view. It should be a day of gladness in our minds, a day that we long to see. But also, if it were viewed from another vantage point, it should be bitter to us, uh, the thought of people being judged on that day should, in a way, trouble us. And it should trouble us in this way, that it compels us to go and to proclaim Christ to all whom we have the opportunity to speak. It should lead us to preach Christ. Indeed, God's judgments will be right. They will be true. Every mouth will be stopped before him. No one will be able to answer back to him saying what you have done and what you have decreed, what you have declared, what you have judged is wrong. No one will do that, not Christian nor the non-Christian. But still, the thought of men and women coming under God's judgment should be troubling to us and it should compel us to go and to proclaim the gospel to everyone that we have opportunity to proclaim it to. Thirdly, I ask you this, are you diligent to pray for the salvation of those who do not know Christ and to speak of him as the Lord gives you opportunity? Are you diligent to pray? And so I want to stir you up, brothers and sisters, as we have considered this text together, to do these things, to pray uh, diligently for those who do not yet know Christ. Would you pray uh, for the introduction to the Christian faith class that is going to be taught Uh, later this afternoon and for the next 12 weeks or so. Pray for the ministries of Emmaus Christian Fellowship Church. Pray for one another that you would have opportunities to speak of Christ. And especially pray for those whom you know who do not know Christ yet, that the Lord would call them uh, to himself. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are merciful and gracious. We thank you that you have given time Uh, that you have delayed in the outpouring of your judgment so as to bring all whom you have chosen to salvation in Christ Jesus. We thank you for your mercy shown to all in that way. And we pray, Lord, that you would give grace to us, that we would grow in Christ and proclaim Christ, and that you would indeed draw many to salvation. Lord, we long to see that kind of fruit in our midst. Lord, that kind of result Lord, may you bless all of our efforts, both personally and corporately, uh, that indeed many would be drawn to faith in Christ. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for what has been shown to us in your word concerning the time of the end. You have not told us all, but you have given us what we need. I pray, Lord, that having this view of the end and the time between Christ's first and second coming, we would live according to it in every respect, that our whole life would be ordered according to the truth of your word. Help us to apply these things deeply, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.